Hello, everybody, and welcome to Turn to Page, Season 3, Book 5, Sherlock Holmes Solo Mysteries, The Dynamiters. I'm curious about this one. I do also think, we don't comment on the uh, the covers. Seldom do, yes. But this one, I, I don't say this often, this one goes hard. Yeah, it slaps. <laughs> it's... It's so good. Is that... Are we led to believe that on the cover is a very stern and serious-looking Watson? I believe this would be a Watson. It could theoretically be a Sherlock, even. it's it's. Well, yes, that's true. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) name of the book, Watson, Solo Mysteries. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very clearly a uh, a detective who is enabled to look into this crime scene by the police force because you can see him looking in through the wreckage of Paddington Station mm-hmm. uh, behind a police line with throngs of the public looking on. Yeah, it is. I God, it's a it's a it's a good cover. I really mm-hmm. like it. But uh, man, that what that felt like a throwback. I don't, I don't think we, I don't think we've talked about the cover since goosebumps <laughs> but i uh i'm very very in I'm, I'm curious it's a smaller smaller cast in this one does not necessarily mean an easier mystery does mean a well better... certainly it does because if we have to randomly choose someone at the end we're much more likely to choose the criminal That's, that is what i was about to say is it does help us if we're playing random style though even in the books where they have like a million characters, when you get to the end, they're like, which one of the five? I know you talk mm-hmm. to 26 workers on site, but which of these five people <laughs> is usually what you get slapped with? It's, I'm calling my shot, it's Lieutenant Neville Moores. I think it's Paddington. I don't trust that little guy. He's been to jail, you know. That's a cheeky smile. He knows something I don't. Tell me what it is, Paddington. I've, Put I've, us on the same level so I can trust you. I've seen Paddington too. He literally broke out of prison. I'm not kidding. Well, now, I don't know what jurisdiction this is the case in, but I believe it's not a crime to break out of prison in, I think it might be Germany. Mm, uh, <laughs> because I, I believe they couldn't make it illegal <laughs> to try and break out of prison without it being a privation of human rights and their ability to uh, seek safety, comfort, and security and freedom. Yeah, it, honestly, you're doing them a service because you're pointing out the security flaws. You're basically a Exactly. Contractor. I'm a white hack, white hat uh, criminal. I go into prison, I break out, I show you the flaws, and then we make a series about it. <laughs> Wentworth Miller stars as me. Exactly. Because that guy has to have been doing penetration tests for prisons. He went into four. You don't yeah. make that. How are you getting into four prisons? That's a career. That that's a that's a hobby for sure. If not mm-hmm. a career, like I don't know. Yeah, Paddington. I don't know. I don't trust the little bear. I've seen him do it. Do a crime once. Break out. I think he's tough enough to do it again. Either way, prologue. We got a we got a doozy here. So buckle mm-hmm. on up, get your prologue pants on, your prologue cup of tea. A big cup of your most potable substance. <laughs> big cup of big cup of your prologue pants. Uh, anyways, May of eighteen eighty six brings a cold, wet spring to London. Great coats and ulsters are everywhere. 
many smelling of moth mothballs that her owners lulled into a false sense of security by a warming April. However, the cold weather does not deter the commerce of this great city. The heart of a great nation is at its zenith. Indeed, fortune seems to favor Great Britain. Englishmen everywhere are fond of saying the sun never sets on the British Empire. Nearly everyone who matters in British society is satisfied with his lot. Queen Victoria reigns at Buckingham Palace, and the country is at peace. Old suspicions of a Europe united against England are at a low ebb, and relations with the old enemy France are mostly amicable. The aggressions of the European powers are focused not on each other, but on the backwards areas of the world. Nations rich with natural, natural resources, but technology inferior, and unable to defend themselves against the might of modern arms. In London itself, the trappings of empire are everywhere. Majestic buildings of marble and granite rise along the busy avenues of the West End. Ornately carved and columned, many bear nautical influence of Britain's powerful fleets, a tribute to the empire's foundation. The crowded streets reflect the far-flung borders of the British power. As saffron robes and white turbans float on a sea of dark-suited bankers and lawyers, the poor are present too, but strangely invisible and unacknowledged. The poor? No way. <laughs> Ragged street urchins dash among the crowds, and beggars ply their trade in the shadow of the grandeur all around them. Thursday's cold and clear. Bright sunshine driven home by knife-sharp winds. The steady drizzle and the gloom of the past week is banished for the moment. But the bright sunlight seems inappropriate to the shout of a news vendor hawking their wares. Dynamite is strike again! screams one. Carnage at Paddington Station, cries another. The outraged newspapers tell of yet another atrocity committed by Paddington, by the Dynamiters, a loose-knit collection of Victorian terrorists, legacy of die-hard revolutionaries and anarchists left over from the days of the French Revolution nearly a century ago. Lately, they've been joined by Irish separatists attempting to force Britain out of Ireland to achieve their dream of Irish independence. William Gladstone, the British Prime Minister, is even now arguing for Irish home rule as a compromise measure and has split his Liberal Party as a result. The mood of the country is conservative and the home rule proposal appears headed for certain defeat. The recent uh, spate of bombings is pro proper, <laughs> properly believed to be an attempt by the terrorists to demonstrate the strength of the resolve to achieve self-government in Ireland. The attack which took place during the night is reported to have leveled part of the underground station at Paddington. The newspapers tell of collapsed ceilings, buckled walls, and seeping water that might take the entire line out of service for several weeks. Fortunately, casualties were light, owing at least in part to the lateness of the hour. One is a young man, Jonathan Adams Wheeler, a lieutenant of the Royal Army. The other is believed to be Gladys O'Keefe, an elderly ch chairwoman? Charwoman? What is this? She's referred to as a charwoman multiple times, so I can only imagine this is part of a job. Okay, this is a job. Okay. Whose habit it is to seek shelter in the station from the chill night air. At the keep, Kingston-upon-Thames, you, Lieutenant S. Charles Watson. Okay. Of the 5th Northumberland Fusiliers are just finishing your breakfast on the officer's mess of the Prince of Wales' own light horse. What the hell did I just say? You are away from your own regiment on a two-year posting which has brought you to Kingston for home service training. And then Raps takes over for the rest of it. The mirror on the near wall catches your eye. As the mess steward walks by, you find yourself looking at your own reflection. 
you see a tall young man with broad shoulders. Oh, wait. Oh, God. Which you know, whoops, have not escaped the notice of the young ladies at the Holy Mount Church in the village. Your fair hair seems an odd contrast to the deep tan of your skin, a testimonial to your Indian upbringing which not even a year in England has erased. Your open and honest face is creased on the left cheek by a thin white scar which disappears into your sideburns, a souvenir of an encounter with an Afghan bandit some years ago. You're at the point of deciding whether to have the mess steward prepare another pot of tea when the man hesitantly approaches you with a newspaper in hand. From the newspaper, you learn the sad news of Jonathan Wheeler's death. At first, you're incredulous and stunned with grief, but soon, you begin to wonder the circumstances of the tragedy. You and Jonathan had been friends for years, first as roommates and then as constant companions at Sandhurst, and then, by a happy coincidence, both of you had been assigned to the same regiment in Kingston for home service. That coincidence had permitted you to renew your friendship and become roommates once more. You remember from the beginning you'd helped Jonathan to conceal his chronic asthma, a circumstance which might have resulted in his dismissal from the service had it become known to his superiors. You're certain Jonathan would never have willingly done anything to aggravate his condition, even at the risk of returning to camp later than he should. It would therefore make no sense of him to use the underground under any but the most compelling circumstances, and most especially, not the Metropolitan Line, which still uses old-fashioned coal-fire locomotives. And why Paddington, you ask yourself? Paddington is the wrong rail station to catch the train to Kingston. By all rights, Jonathan should never have even been there where the mom exploded. You close your eyes to escape the newspaper lying on the table in front of you, but the headline seems imprinted on your mind's eye. You find yourself feverishly trying to make sense of it all, hoping the pain and shock will abate, and you can just find some logic behind the crime. What could Jonathan have been doing in the station at that time of night? Perhaps he had a run-in with the uh, dynamiters before the uh, crime. Could he have come to a bad end somewhere else and then been left at Paddington? Each possibility you propose seems more bizarre than the last, and none of them make sense. You come to the conclusion that there are too many unanswered questions about the death of your friend, and you intend to get to the bottom of the matter. You decide to visit Scotland Yard to get more information. You take a notebook and a pen with you, enough money to see you through the week, your pocket watch and a pen knife, and the newspaper you got in the mess in that morning. Turn to Turn. 151. To 151. Oh, hey. 151. That is quite the prologue. Mm-hmm. We're a prescribed character in this world already. It's true. And it also is another plus one to, like, there never having been any cohesion between the books. It is an anthology, mm-hmm. and it is not... These are not linked. They're the same names. And I am starting to think we will indeed actually run to a completely alive Sherlock Holmes. I think Oh, it's absolutely. Be... It'll be unremarkable. Yeah, it's going to be unremarkable. I don't think it's going to be a thing at all. <laughs> Which makes the last not figuring out who was faking in the last book even funnier. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. You're off duty for the time being, so you decide to act immediately on your impulse. Walking to the train station in Kingston, you board the first train to London. The trip takes just over an hour. But you're too busy thinking to admire the lush green countryside and the clusters of small villages that huddle in London's shadow. Arriving at Waterloo Station, you hail a handsome cab and instruct the driver to take you to Scotland Yard. Right, you are, Lieutenant. The cab driver replies, and you realize that you've forgotten your change out of your uniform. Forgotten to change out of your uniform. 
Arriving at your destination, you quickly pay the man and stride briskly up the stairs to the Great Scotland Yard. You notice that the old building still shows the marks of the bomb of the dynamiters that they set off nearly two years ago. A grim reminder of your mission. Inside, you see a uniformed police sergeant, and you call to him. Sergeant, a moment of your time, if you please. The man looks up and straightens a little as he sees your uniform. Oh, yes, sir. What can we do for Majesty's Army today? He asks. Just some information, Sergeant. You reply. About the bombing at Paddington last night. I wish to inquire into the circumstances of Lieutenant Wheeler's death. Pick a number and add your communication. Wow. Wow, it's an eight That's check a high right away? Bomb. But we before any choices, before anything, just Mm-hmm. I mean we do get it. We got a nine, eight plus one, so Hell yeah. I mean <laughs> that does help. Uh so if eight or higher, turn to three seventy seven. The constable looks at you questioningly. From the same unit, are you? He asks. At your nod, he continues. Your friend? You nod again. Thought so. He sighs kindly. Bad business, that. Sorry, Lieutenant. It's just precious little to tell. A nitroglycerin bomb or so the detectives tell me. Fair level, this place. Nothing solid yet. Typical dynamite at work, if you ask me. Nothing else to add. He looks at you a moment. Sorry about your friend, he says softly. Just then, two men enter and stand conferring in the lobby. The sergeant leans forward conspiratorially. There's the men to see. The stout one, Mr. Alfinelli Jones, a detective, signed the case. Looking in the direction he indicates, you see a small, small man, a tall man. Uh, a man tall and burly and beginning to run to fat. Okay. His eyes burn small and bright, hidden behind swollen lids. Who's the other? You ask, nodding towards the second man who is of medium height, immaculately dressed, and with the air of a gentleman. Our chief, Inspector Maxwell Stern, Mr. Jones's superior. And mine too. He straightens as Athen... <laughs> Athelney Jones walks towards you. Trouble, Sergeant? He asks. Uh, no, sir. The sergeant replies. The lieutenant here came for information about the bombing last night. Introduce yourself, but... It is readily apparent that Jones has little interest in helping you. He rather arrogantly informs you that the police will not divulge information concerning an active investigation and then turns to walk away. You know, a communication success. Yeah, exactly. If we <laughs> failed, I can only imagine he came over and immediately decked us. Yeah, we could <laughs> die. Turn to 410. You make your way back to Kingston, realizing that the police will not answer your questions for some time, if ever. I mean, maybe it's it might be shooing us out of a red herring. I think mm, that might be the point. thing. You have just entered your room when the regimental commander's orderly knocks are on the door. Colonel Sterling's compliments, sir. The man says. Will you be good enough to come to his office just now? You nod, taking a swipe at your boots with the boot black brush and start for the regimental headquarters. The building is a brown block two-story with a red shingled roof that you never liked. Having lived most of your life in India, you're more home with the open spacious architecture of the you are more at home with the open spacious architecture of colonial Britain. This great mound of block has always seemed to brood over the parade, dark and foreboding as a prison. 
You enter the colonel's office, snapping to attention and saluting your most in your most professional manner. You know Colonel Sterling is something of a stickler for proper form and can be merciless when observing minor infractions. There you are, Watson, Colonel Sterling says, looking out the window as he negligently returns your salute with the riding crop he holds in his hand. Could not think where you'd possibly gotten to. I'm sorry, sir, you reply. I went into the city to make inquiries about Lieutenant Wheeler. Oh, uh, yeah, that's precisely what I want to see you about. Colonel Sterling says as he turns to face you. Tall and lean, Colonel Sir Edward Harrison Sterling KB OBE epitomizes the worst aspects of British aristocracy and the English language. <laughs> his cold blue eyes and gray hair bestow an aloof dignity, and his depreciating attitude towards subordinates has always made him unapproachable. I wonder if you'd be good enough to take up the job of settling Wheeler's affairs, Watson. Gathering up his personal effects and settling off to his family and such. I've already written to his father in the matter. Of course, sir. You replied, knowing that this is the colonel's method of giving orders. When shall I begin? Oh, no. My page just went very far away from there. Where are we? Uh, 410. So, uh, book page 148. Immediately, if you please. I've already informed the regimental sergeant major that you have no other duties until this one completed. Do you think a week should be sufficient? Certainly, sir. You reply, faintly surprised that he's given you even that long. Later that night, you sort through Jonathan's clothing, including the dress cloak to his mess uniform, which, curiously, you found lying across his bed when you returned to the room. You suddenly remember Jonathan had worn the cloak the previous night. And puzzled, you reach over and pull it towards you. As you do, a small piece of red cardboard tumbles from the inside pocket. You pick it up and examine it closely. It's rectangular, longer than it is wide, and torn across its shorter dimension. On the bottom of the untorn end are the letters LC Limited, and the higher up num the and higher up the numbers eleven oh four. Check off clue A, pick a number, and add your scholarship. Whoa! That's a very hard check as well. 11 or 12 for his discuss on this. Okay, I'm going to roll one die. That's a two. All right. We That's still have not time. possible then. We still have time. We still have a chance. That's a three. Now, if mm. I roll another set of two dice, I still don't make it. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's a, okay. So that's a five plus a four. That brings us to nine plus one. That would be a 10 on two rolls. Let me roll one more time. Uh, that's a four. So we just barely make it if we can count three rolls added together. No, unfortunately, if we uh, hit and roll a fifth, then uh, we actually bust. We go over 12. So oh, shoot. Dealy gets the money. Shoot. I thought we were playing Yahtzee. <laughs> All right. Uh, 131. The ticket jogs your memory, but maddeningly... maddeningly the connection refuses to surface. You know the ticket might give you a clue to Jonathan's whereabouts on the night of his death. Hopefully the answer will turn up during your investigation. If you ask around camp about the ticket, check decision 1, turn to 308. If you pursue alternative avenues of investigation, check decision 2 and go to 340. I mean, this is our first clue. We have to pursue it. Yeah. 
It's LC Limited and 1104, and it seems like the ticket is torn at the top as well. So this is going to be a train ticket. I just need to know the details. Hmm. You decide to ask around the camp about the ticket, hoping that someone might know where Jonathan had gone to last night. There's several people who might know the answer to your questions, and among them is Colonel Sterling, whose office you left just a short time ago. Another likely source of information is the regimental Sergeant Major Peter Austin. The RSM is a powerfully built man, though not especially tall. His thick neck and massive shoulders remind you of a wrestler, but his dark eyes are hooded and you suspect they mask great intelligence. You think the RSM might just possibly be the most dangerous man that you've ever met. The regimental adjutant, Major Stephen Dillon, is Stephen Dillon, is someone else who might be able to identify this ticket stub. Major Dillon is a short, florid-faced man with the red bulbous nose of a heavy drinker. His small stature, stature, dark beady eyes, and paunch would, in many circumstances, present a comical figure. But Dillon's devotion to his commander is almost legendary in the regiment. At night, he is often in his cups, but to your knowledge, his drinking has never affected the performance of his duties. The only other person you can think to ask is Corporal Bosworth, the gate guard of the previous evening. Jonathan might have mentioned where he was going to the corporal, as he and Bosworth were on good terms, having worked together on several projects. If you ask Colonel Sterling, 293, RSM Peter Austin, 145, Major Stephen Dillon, 504, Corporal Bosworth, 399. Hmm. I mean, we did just leave conversation with uh, Colonel Sterling. He seems to be uh, an aloof delegate of sort, which is to say, I don't imagine he wants to answer our questions as much as give us questions to answer. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if we might have a better time trying to get information out of Major Stephen Dillon, uh, who might be deep in his cups by the time we talk to him. Yeah, I also like the name Major Dillon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that guy's a Major Dillon. Yeah. <laughs> God, I don't so, want to talk to him. He's such a major Dylan. So it's five oh four, if I recall correctly. You're, you're. You decide to question Major Dylan, the regimental adjutant. Major Dylan would know if Jonathan had been invited to attend an official function, which might explain why he wore his mess uniform. The major's office is in the regimental head. Wait, oh, what am I doing? In the regimental headquarters at the back of the building, across from Colonel Sterling's. Passing through the small antechamber where the major's clerks sit, you enter his office. Dylan is hard at work at his desk, and you must wait until he acknowledges your presence. Finally, Dylan looks up. Yes, yes, what is it, Watson? He asks distractedly. Sorry to disturb you, sir. You begin. But it is about Lieutenant Wheeler. But what about him? Dylan asks, favoring you with his full attention. Well... I found this in his cloak. You show him the ticket stub. I thought it might explain why he wore his mess uniform last night. Do you know of any official function he might have attended? No, I don't. He states emphatically. I'm hardly responsible for Lieutenant Wheeler's off-duty hours, Watson. I'm afraid I can share no light on this matter. He begins to shuffle the papers on his desk and then looks up as if surprised to still see you there. Was there something else? He asks. No, sir. You reply, taking the cue and turning to leave. Watson. 
Dylan calls to you as you walk towards the door. You turn Shut back to the door behind you, will you? After you turn back to face him. Pick a number <laughs> and add your intuition. <laughs> I jumped the gun. Uh needing an eight, getting a ten. Not today. Book. Get him. Uh turning to four ninety-eight. As you leave the room, you wonder what it is about the conversation you had with Major Dylan that disturbs you. You certainly knew something about the ticket stub, something that he kept to himself. You're also certain that the sight of the ticket stub startled him. Could he be lying? You can hardly accuse a superior officer of dissembling without a good reason. Still, you'll bear it in mind. Check off clue E and turn to 340. Are you there? I think that is so good for us. Last time we had, uh, sorry, what, what's the page we're turning to? 340. 340, cool. Um, last time we had someone lie to us and be surprised by a presentation of evidence. It was They murdered someone about key. it. Key. Yeah. Exactly. You find yourself becoming increasingly frustrated. The harder you just started. Mood. Absolute mood. You find yourself becoming increasingly frustrated. The harder you work to obtain useful information about Jonathan's death, the more uncertain you are that you've discovered anything at all. You realize that you will need help. Professional help, and the police have already demonstrated that they intend to pursue the easy path in this investigation. What you need is an independent expert to provide guidance in how to fit these puzzles of pieces puzzles of the pieces together. Suddenly, you remember something that your father wrote in the last letter to you. It seems that you have a relative who, by coincidence, lives in London. Your father had asked you to pay your respects, but you've had little opportunity to do so. Now, wait. Now is a particularly fitting time, as your second cousin is Dr. John H. Watson, who shares rooms with the celebrated consulting detective, Sherlock Holmes. <gasps> Sorry, do you mean team. Captain Locke? Captain <laughs> the Navy? <Locke>. Home. <laughs> Gorlock Jones. <laughs> All right. Uh, turn to 415. Back from the dead. Returning to your room, you rummage through your desk until you find your father's letter. You open it and quickly scan the contents. There it is. You say to yourself. The address is 221 W. Baker Street, near St. John Wood. You calculate furiously for a moment. The next train from Kingston will get you to Waterloo Station close to 4 p.m. You can reach your cousin's residence by dusk, well, before the dinner, well before the dinner hour. You promise yourself not to overstay your welcome, but sincerely hope that Dr. Watson will spare the time to listen to your tale. Changing into your civilian clothes, you hurry off to the station. Fortunately for you, the train is running early, nearly 10 minutes. Wait, <laughs> early train? <laughs> Nearly ten minutes behind schedule, and you realize that you reach the station just as it's pulling in. As you board, you notice Major Dillon, also in civilian clothes, climbing into another car up the truck. He doesn't see you, and you decide that nothing will be gained by going forward to see him. After an uneventful trip, you reach Waterloo Station and manage to find a hansom to drive you to Baker Street. Your earlier calculations prove correct. The sun is setting just as your cab pulls up to your cousin's residence, and checking your pocket watch, you're confident that there is time for a visit, so you walk up the stairs and knock on the door. After a moment, the door opens to reveal a figure of an older woman who waits for you to state your business. When you tell her you're here to see your cousin, Dr. Watson, her attitude softens considerably. She identifies herself as Mrs. Hudson. 
I thought you might be another one of those people to see Mr. Holmes. She sniffs, letting you in. You could never imagine the riffraff that climbed these stairs. Second door at the top. She points, turning to walk back to the kitchen, shaking her head and muttering to herself. You climb the stairs and rap on the door. Jump scare. The door is opened by a tall, slender man wearing a lounging jacket. It's his eyes that arrest you, as intense and piercing as those of a bird of prey. A comparison emphasized by his long, aquiline nose. For moments, you feel as though a spotlight has shone full upon you, and then just as quickly, that sensation passes. He favors you with a slight but friendly smile, throws the door open wide, and extends his hand in greeting. Welcome, Lieutenant Watson, says he. I am Sherlock Holmes. Do come in. The good doctor will be quite pleased by your visit. He's been out of sorts all day. You feel your knees sag. How does this perfect stranger know your name? Good afternoon, Mr. Holmes, you reply, shaken. I hope I'm not intruding. You walk into the room and look around. It's a large and airy, well-lighted, and com- comfortably furnished room. Good heavens, Holmes! You hear someone exclaim as another man rises from an armchair near the fireplace. Did you say Lieutenant Watson? He's not as tall as Holmes, but more sturdy and sports a bushy mustache. This must be your cousin. Wait. <laughs> well, I guess we've never met him. Okay, yeah. This must be your cousin, Dr. Watson. Yes, I did. Replies Holmes. Lieutenant Watson, allow me to present you your cousin, Dr. Watson. I see the lieutenant belongs in your old regiment, Doctor. Well, well, well met, well met, says Dr. Watson, striding over to the pump to pump your hand vigorously. Then, noting your confusion, he continues with a smile. Never mind, Holmes. He does that all the time. Yes, but how? You ask, still shaken. To my knowledge, I haven't met either of you before today. Oh, you'll have to ask Holmes, Dr. Watson says, shaking his head. He astounds me every time. It's not as difficult as it sounds, Lieutenant, comments Holmes as he walks over to the brake front to begin filling his pipe. If I tell you, you will think it commonplace, as indeed it is. In fact, it is more often difficult to put into words than to actually accomplish the deed. Most of us look at people without really seeing them. I try to see them, and deduce what I can from that observation. Yes, you say. But I don't understand how that process allowed you to identify me with such certainty. I was not aware my father had written Dr. Watson about me. If he has, I did not know it, nor did I need to. Holmes taps your name tag. (laughs) Holmes pauses for a moment while he lights his pipe, then continues. It's relatively simple, really. You bear a strong family resemblance to the good doctor, which is more evident to an outsider than it is to either of you. On the third finger of your left hand, you wear a ring with the Watson family crest. The good doctors previously told me that he has no relatives living in England, but that does not preclude relatives living abroad. Your skin is tanned, though you have not yet had close acquaintance with the sun lately. That, together with the saber scar on your cheek, points to the Afghan war and your service in India. You wear the regimental tie of the 5th Northumberland uh, Fusiliers, a mark of an officer and, by your age, would be a lieutenant. Since I know Dr. Watson has no nephews matching your description, you must be a cousin. As I said, it's quite simple. Now that you explain it, it does sound simple. You comment. 
But I doubt that understanding the deduction is, in retrospect, as a feat equal to the accomplishment of the deed. Possibly. Admits Holmes. It is certainly true that few of us are willing to concentrate on an object, a person, a situation, long enough to see what there is to be seen. Ah, enough of this! Dr. Watson interrupts. We're forgetting our manners, Holmes. Please, join us by the fire. You'll stay for dinner, of course. Mrs. Hudson sets a fine table. It'll be woodcock tonight, unless I'm pretty much mistaken. I'd love to join you. You accept gratefully. But I am afraid this isn't entirely a social call. I cannot come for your advice regarding, or rather, I come for your advice regarding a grave matter, one in which you may not wish to involve yourselves. Ah, pray, go on, encourages Dr. Watson with concern in his voice. Holmes remains silent, but you realize that he's already discerned something is troubling you and was only waiting for you to speak of it. You may have heard of the bombing last night at Paddington Station. You begin and they're not, and wait, and at their nods continue. One of the victims was Lieutenant Jonathan Wheeler, my best friend. I come to believe that the official versions of events may be incorrect, and the police are too quick to blame the pin, uh, pin the blame rather, on the dynamiters. You outline what you've learned so far and conclude by pulling out the ticket stub. If you've checked clue B, turn to 384, otherwise 242. What was the one we clicked? Uh, clues A and E. Unfortunately, this would probably be uh, the correct yeah. roll on the stub. Yeah. All right. Turn to 242. Then I may be you... mistaken, but I believe this is a choke. Uh, clet is what uh, my brain wanted to say. A cloak check stub. Although I cannot say where it is from. <laughs> You comment, handing the ticket to Holmes. You would be right. Holmes replies approvingly. I published a monograph on ticket stubs just last year. The police have already used it to solve a forgery. This one came from the Leonidas Club, a gentleman's club catering to high-ranking military, uh, military officers. Uh, here. He continues, reaching behind him and pulling out a folder to hand to you. You turn to the entry detailing the Leonidas Club and find that Holmes is correct. Check off clue B. If you've checked clue C, D, or E, wait, we have three different paths to go. Otherwise, 281. We have checked E, e. which is that Dylan knew about the stub. 331. Or seemed to have. Now, tell me more of your conversation with Major Dylan. 331. All good. Holmes says as you hand him the folder. And leave nothing out. It has long been an axiom of mine that small things are often the most important. You describe the conversation in as much detail as you can remember, but as you speak, you're overwhelmed with doubts. In the presence of this great detective, your suspicions do not sound very convincing. And so much of what you suspect is further weakened by the fact that you deal with Dylan only on an occasional basis. I know that the evidence is weak. You finish lamely but I am certain he knows something more. As you say, Holmes remarks after you finish, the evidence does not confirm your belief that perhaps Lieutenant Wheeler was not killed at the explosion in Paddington Station. I would have to side with the police at this juncture. There's no cogent evidence to the contrary, although it could be as you claim. Lieutenant Wheeler may have had a bad end through some other circumstances and evidence of that crime obscured by the explosion. 
Just such a deception occurred in the Heist case in Potsdam in 41, and again in 78 with the Rossovich affair in Moscow. But here, I believe the weight of evidence points to a hapless run-in with a dynamiter's bomb. Turn to 123. It's not often we get that from Sherlock. Yeah. Just He's a... wrong as hell? Yeah, we're, I mean, or maybe we're going to get to the end and it's just a... He died from the from the bomb. You should have listened to Sherlock, dummy. <laughs> uh, Holmes continues in a didactic tone. In any event, it is doubtful whether pursuing the matter in Kingston will yield any additional information. It has been my experience that when confronted with several possibilities in the investigation of a crime, the most obvious method of resolution is to eliminate alternatives one by one. Since only one alternative is clear at the present, I would suggest you concentrate on the dynamiters. Turn to page 427. Unfortunately, continues Holmes, I will not be able to assist you in your endeavor as my energies are presently consumed by another case. Come now, Holmes, Dr. Watson interrupts. Surely you can spare some time for the young man. He's my cousin, after all. Just so, Doctor, replies Holmes. I shall do so to the best of my ability, but I do not have the time to devote days or even hours to the lieutenant. You know very well the case that I am pursuing presently is a race I must run to the end. Though I may disappoint you, I must decline. But Holmes, surely you can at least agree to consult upon the matter when Charles discovers further evidence. It is your profession, your duty, argues Dr. Watson. Oh, certainly I can do that. He agrees. Provided it does not interfere with my own investigation. Well, then. Holmes continues decisively, having set his limits. To business. I would suggest you begin with the dynamiters. You should speak with them. Ah, I see you already have a question. He pauses as you lean forward in your chair. Uh, Mr. Holmes. You begin. I don't want to be impertinent, but I must confess that I find myself somewhat bewildered by your advice. How do you mean? Holmes asks. I mean, sir, how is it that you expect me to contact a secret society that Scotland Yard has been singularly unable to penetrate in years of intense investigation? Ah, that, replies Holmes. You should realize, Lieutenant, that when attempting to enter a rabbit warren, it is best not to have the scent of the hounds upon you. If I take your meaning, you will you believe that I will have an advantage over the police. I don't see how that will be so, Mr. Holmes. I have no training in activities of that sort. I have no idea where to begin. Lieutenant, at least a part of the answer is obvious. To your dismay, you sense a touch of irritation creeping into Sherlock Holmes's voice. If the dynamiters are responsible for this heinous act, they will quickly claim credit for it. That is, of course, their practice. The morning newspapers should contain the statement. If they're not responsible... These criminals claim the credit. These criminals may rather claim the credit, but the confusion in their own ranks should prevent them from doing so quickly. In that case, their statement might not appear for several days. Finally, these terrorists may not have been responsible and, for reasons of their own, may decide to deny it altogether. In the first instance, it would be dangerous to approach them. He continues. But the newspapers should warn you of the eventuality and remove any real need to pursue the matter further. In the second, quick action might secure the truth of the matter before all members of the band have been consulted. In the final instance, the terrorists might actually welcome an opportunity to deny responsibility to the right person, provided their case 
would be uh, provided their cause rather would gain by it. The first case will be resolved in a few hours and requires no action on your part. The second and third possibilities require making direct contact with the terrorists. They will, therefore, involve an element of personal risk and some difficulty in establishing contact. I believe I can be of assistance in the latter possibilities. How so, Holmes? asked Dr. Watson anxiously. The Baker Street Division of the Detective Police Force, of course. Declares Holmes with a faint smile. What? You ask, feeling out of your depth. Straight irregulars. Dr. Watson answers, nodding. Holmes sometimes employs them to gather information. Quite right, Doctor. Holmes adds. They often have access to where I do not. I shall instruct their leader, Wiggins, to arrange a meeting with one of the deputies of the... Sorry, one of the principals, rather, of the Dynamiteers tomorrow. You can spend the night, Lieutenant. Mrs. Hudson has a spare room, which will suit you nicely. If you've checked off clues C, D, or E, turn to 318. We have. We have indeed. That is still the Dylan you about the stub. Thank you, Mr. Holmes. You reply. I shall accept your kind invitation. Turning to Dr. Watson, you ask. Are you certain Mrs. Hudson would not object to setting another place for supper? Of course not, my boy, of course not. Watson says, beaming. I shall see you to your room so you can wash while Holmes sends words out to his regulars. Holmes, you might remind Wiggins not to put the entire group up here. You know what a state it put Mrs. Hudson in. Holmes nods distractedly as Dr. Watson ushers you into the door. Turn to 297. After a leisurely supper and a chat with Dr. Watson about family matters, you turn in. Earlier, Holmes has gone out to contact the mysterious street irregular Wiggins, while you and Dr. Watson had strolled to the telegraph office to wire the regiment that you would stay in London overnight on business. The next morning is cold and damp, gusts of wind ushering in a blustery gray dawn. You exit your room and climb the stairs to meet Dr. Watson descending from the second floor. You hear the front door slam shut and turn to find Sherlock Holmes climbing the stairs behind you. Holmes has a newspaper tucked under his arm. Good morning, my boy. Dr. Watson greets you cheerily. Did you sleep well? Uh, very well, thank you. You reply, lying through your teeth. In fact, you laid awake most of the night, trying to come up, come to grips with Jonathan's death, remembering the times you'd spent together, and only now appreciating what a good friend he had been. The sagging, lumpy mattress had not helped the matters, but you know you would not have slept had you lain upon the softest goose down. You look at Sherlock Holmes in time to catch his sardonic smile, having deducted what Dr. Watson had not. Well, Holmes, the doctor says as you seat yourself at the table. Gonna keep us in suspense? What do the newspapers say? It seems the lieutenant may be onto something after all. There is no claim of responsibility in any of the morning papers. The case begins to become interesting. Were I not so absorbed by the other affair, I should be delighted to pursue the matter further. The three of you eat breakfast and then settle back to await Wiggins' reports. You barely seated yourself in an armchair to read the newspaper when you hear Mrs. Hudson's voice raised in an unmistakable tone of dismay and a moment later, the sound of feet pattering up the stairs. A moment later, a ragged street irregular bursts in through the door just seconds ahead of Mrs. Hudson. Oh, it's all right, Mrs. Hudson. Holmes soothes his ruffled landlady. He works for me. She throws a meaningful glance at you. If you say so, Mr. Holmes. She replies in a doubtful tone. 
then turns to go downstairs. Now then, Wiggins. Holmes addresses his small employee. What is the meaning of this? I believe I told you to answer me at the door. She won't go let me in, governor! The street urchin replies in a high, piping voice. I see. Holmes replies. Well, we must find a better way to do this. Never mind that now. What have you found out? Did you locate the gang? No, sir, I ain't. But I hear tell they've been found dragged down to the shamrock most nights. You notice the dirty, ragged youngster is standing at attention as he talks to Holmes. That is all, then. You can go, Wiggins. Holmes says with satisfaction, handing him a few coins. The child scurries from the room, and a moment later you hear the front door slam. You turn back to Holmes and find him bending over a map. The Shamrock is an East End pub frequented by Irishmen who champion on the home rule issue. He says, pointing at a location well inside the East End. The men you want are undoubtedly among the clientele. I should have thought of it myself. You should arrive after the drinking has been heavy for a time. He continues. Late enough to blur their judgment a bit, but not so late that they would become quarrelsome. You've got to be careful. I'd advise against telling anyone that you're a British army officer, if you wish to live through the night. In fact, it might help if you can pretend to be other than an Englishman altogether. Are you good at accents? I can do a passable American accent. You reply. Oh, God. Well, have you got any others? <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on, I could try this. That should work. Many of the Americans are sympathetic to Irish whole room question. Oh, what about clothing? You can't go there looking so. Hmm. Holmes ponders for a moment. I believe I have something that will do nicely. Turn to page 154. I, I I wanted to try and do one of the, the Benedict Cumberbatch, like, just pan-American, like, I'm getting a I cheeseburger. I love hamburgers. <laughs> I enjoy to eat a hamburger. <laughs> uh, yes, I would like some ketchup with my fries. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Excuse me, these are chips. Uh anyway. <laughs> I okay. asked for fries. <laughs> no, you actually you said chips. I think you maybe thought okay, all right. Uh anyways, 154. Mm-hmm. After checking the afternoon newspapers to be certain that the dynamiters have not laid claim to the blasts, you leave 221B Baker Street. You now wear boots, heavy cotton trousers, a checked open-necked shirt, <laughs> an I Love New York t-shirt, and a black felt hat. <laughs> you feel underdressed for polite company, as indeed you are, but you look the part of the American laborer that Holmes has convinced you to play. You travel by underground to the East End, a part of London that you've never seen. The buildings here are small and mean, with a crumbling front and sagging roof. Gone is the elegance and grace of the West End. Here, the predominant architectural feature is decay. The same sun which never sets on the British Empire apparently never rises in the dark alleys of the East End. Figures of broken men slump in sagging doorways, ragged children are everywhere, Soot and despair hang heavy in the air, and eventually you find the shamrock, marked more by the group of hopeless men crowding the doorway than the faded sign above the entrance. 
You push your way through the crowd and you approach the bar. And what'll ye be having? The barkeep asks. I'd like a whiskey. You say in your best American accent. An American, are you? He asks. Yes, I am. <laughs> you answer. Born and raised in New York City. But my name is Patrick O'Keefe all the same. An Irishman. He grows with the light. <laughs> New York City. I, I'm visualizing a really good scene right now. Oh, mm -hmm. <laughs> he crows with the light, reaching for his most expensive bottle of rye whiskey. After getting a drink, you wander about a pub looking for the clientele, trying to select a likely candidate to approach. Finally, you decide that since you do not have Sherlock Holmes's eye, the barkeep will do as well as any. You've decided to tell them that your aunt was the charwoman, Gladys O'Keefe, who was killed in the same explosion that killed Jonathan. You hope to thereby draw him into a discussion of the dynamiters. Pick a number and add your artifice, needing a seven. Doable. Perfectly doable. That's a six plus Ooh. one. Seven. Five twenty-one. Imagine we get kicked out of the freaking bar. Mm-hmm. Immediately. I've seen through your accent, I have. <laughs> The barkeep responds to your overtures and seems willing enough to answer your questions. From time to time, he walks along the bar, filling orders and talking to customers. Finally, you manage to steer the topic of conversation to the subject of the dynamiters and ask him if he knows any of the terrorists himself. He looks around theatrically, then leans slowly across the bar to whisper to you. And what were you wanting to know for? He asks. The bar becomes very still. Uh, because I'd like to talk to a representative of the Irish faction. You reply, knowing that you have irrevocably committed yourself. Well, just speak up, then. He replies with a sneer. They're all around you. You look up and find that the bar is no longer crowded. Many of the customers have drifted away, replaced by big, mean-looking roughs who do not appear to be well-disposed towards you. The barkeep was apparently doing more than taking orders. He has had cleared, cleared the bar of non-combatants. The only customers left are members of the gang, and they have you trapped. I didn't come here to address the membership. You say with as much dignity as you can muster. I wish to speak to a leader. Oh, too good to talk to the likes of us, is it then, sir? The barkeep demands sarcastically, no trace of friendliness left in his voice. That's correct. You say, standing your ground. Then follow me. He replies, lifting up a section of the bar. He walks over to the door, that down into the wine cellar and opening it motions you through. You make your way carefully down the darkened, winding staircase, your eyes slowly adjusting to the dim light. Again, one, again, against one wall, you see a beer keg turned on its head. A single candle sputters fitfully on its keg top, brightening the gloom, but not banishing it entirely. In a chair on the far side of the candle sits a man, masked and robed. Over here. The man's voice is cultured and pleasant. He speaks with an Oxford accent and stands as you approach. I will not offer to shake your hand. We both know it would be an empty gesture. Just as I don't offer my hand, I don't offer my name. However, you may call me Sean O'Grady if you'd like. I have used it on occasion. When I was a child and on my birth certificate and <laughs> my ID. <laughs> you said Tap's name tag. <laughs> you sit down uneasily. I assume you not telling me who you are increases my prospects of emerging from this meeting alive. Huh, that is correct. 
The silken voice replies. If I am satisfied in other aspects, now tell me why you've come. You abandon your po pose and tell the man of your doubts about the bombing. You don't mention any of your other suspicions. And have you been to the police with this information? I have. You reply. And what was their reaction? Eh, they refused to believe me. You admit? I thought as much. He sighs. It would be pointless for us to deny it. We'll get the blame anyway. We may as well accept credit. Mr. O'Grady, do I understand you to say that you didn't bomb the station? That is correct. We didn't do it. Is it possible another faction of your group did? You persist? I have made inquiries. He replies. And I believe not. Mr. O'Grady. You begin finding yourself unable to resist asking a question that's been bothering you. You seem to be a reasonable and educated man. Why is it that you and other members of your band persist in these wanton attacks? Immediately you feel that you've overstepped yourself. The man you know as Sean O'Grady stiffens, his eyes boring into yours with such anger that you've never seen. You remind yourself that you're dealing with the leader of the most vicious terrorist band in the land. His manner may be civilized, but in his, in his breast beats a murderous heart. Hiccups. Okay. After a long moment, he relaxes and leans back in his chair. I think it is ignorance rather than arrogance. He says softly to himself. And English ignorance is what I am about. Tell me, have you ever been to Ireland? I haven't. You reply. I was born and raised in India. <laughs> I guess I'm throwing this away at this point. I'm born and raised in India. Only <laughs> been in England a year. Talking like this. What are you doing? I love um, New York. I'm agony. <laughs> I have not. Was born and raised in India and have only been in England a year. My understanding of Ireland's problems are thin at best. I've heard it to be very beautiful, though. Ireland's beauty is not the issue. O'Grady answers with a hint of exasperation. It is the people of Ireland I want you to know. Do you believe in slavery? Of course not. You reply indignantly. No civilized man does. It's illegal nearly everywhere. Yet in Ireland, many of my people are bought and sold with the land, just as in medieval times. They're owned just as surely as any slave by absentee landlords who live in a foreign land. They are kept in grinding poverty by a church to which they do not belong. Is there any wonder why we wish to be free of you? Surely you're exaggerating. You reply. England is not a foreign land. Ireland is part of the United Kingdom, after all. There speaks the cop. He replies grimly. You would see it differently had Ireland set her foot on English throat. You realize that you've allowed the conversation to drift from the central issue. Check clue F to pay respects. If you allow the... <laughs> phrasing. If you allow the terrorist leader to continue, check decision 4, 380. If you demand proof that the dynamiters were not involved in the bombing, check decision 5 and turn to 500. I think we let him continue, because, like, I, I don't think they were involved in the bombing if we're already getting, like, oh, I guess we'll take credit for it anyway. I don't Yeah, think. it like, seems you don't just say, nah. <laughs> although, there is the possibility that this would give us the evidence to be able to prove to other people that they weren't involved. It's true. It is definitely true. It is scary. Because, hmm. Oh, boy. 
it could go awry. Let's go the 380. Let's go the the first. It was the initial feeling. Mm-hmm. You listen quietly as the leader of the Irish faction expounds on the rationale behind the activities of his group, justifying their crimes in the name of the greater good. And after a time, he stands and declares himself satisfied that you meant no harm and says that you're free to go. If you continue the investigation on your own, 425, if you go to the police, check decision 6 and turn to 390, or if you visit Holmes, 404. Hmm. I mean, when has Holmes ever been, like, wrong about anything ever? Yeah, exactly. But... I wonder if over-relying on him ends up stripping us of the ability to get the clues that we want to show him. I think we shouldn't continue on our own for the moment. I'm also happy to do anything else, but... 425. That's my 425. Wait. 425? Mm-hmm. Okay. I was just confused by... You find a cab to take you to 221B Baker Street, where you're greeted at the door by Mrs. Hudson. She informs you that Dr. Watson has left a fresh has left fresh clothing for you should you call. He's anticipated your needs since he knew you didn't intend to return to Kingston today. After changing, you hail another cab and set off for the scene of the crime. Turn to 240. You make your way through the busy rail station to an underground entrance inside Paddington Station. At a police barricade, you find the constable preventing a constable preventing entry to the underground. Sergeant? You say. I'm Lieutenant Watson. I've been charged with my own personal commander to ensure that Lieutenant Wheeler's personal effects are recovered. I should like to inspect the area. Can't let you in on my authority, sir. The constable replies. The detectives must do that. Pick a number. And add nothing? Add nothing. Straight up to die roll. That is a straight down the middle seven. So Boom. One straight down the middle result. There's a two to four. A 5 to 8 and a 9 to 12. So we're taking the old middle one, 171. The constable asks you to follow him as far as the inner barricade when he asks you to wait as he goes off to fetch the detectives. From what you can see, the damage is not as severe as the newspapers reported. It seems the station will be back in operation by the morning. Soon the constable returns with Athelney Jones. If you've checked result 1, turn to 360, otherwise 336. Did we do one or two? We did one. That was check the stubs. So 360. What are you doing here, Lieutenant? The detective growls as he strides towards you. You'd better not let the Chief Inspector see you, he adds, looking around anxiously. I should like to have a look around, Mr. Jones. You say, knowing what the answer will be. I can't permit that. It's an official police investigation. We can't have you trampling about, disturbing the evidence. I quite understand, Mr. Jones. You reply agreeably, seeing the police are finishing their work. I bid you good day, then. You leave, estimating the police will be gone in an hour. Turn to 344. You wait in a pub across the street until the police remove their cordon and leave. Certain they're gone, you slip through the barricades and walk into the damaged station. You observe the explosion that caused more damage than you can see from the outside. The bomb apparently detonated near the tracks, shattering several benches placed along the wall and one of the wooden staircases leading down from the upstairs railway station. Repairs have not yet begun on the staircase, but there are several other entrances to the platform, so it's not received more than cursory attention. More serious damage was done by the gaslighting fixtures on the ceiling, which were apparently blown out by the force of the explosion and ignited after a gas buildup. Weakening the roof supports, their efforts of the repair crew have been focused there. Turn to 517. 
You move through the damage starting every time you hear a noise, trying to keep your concentration focused on your examination of the area. Pick a number and add to your observation, only needing a 6 and wasting a 12 plus 113 on it. Dang. I hope we get something worthwhile at least. 218. You search doggedly through the rubble of the damaged station. Just when it appears that your efforts are to no avail, a glint of gold catches your eye. You bend down to see what it is, trying to reconstruct the same light angle. At first you see nothing, but then an object catches the lantern light, reflecting brightly. Something is wedged under the debris from the shattered stairs. It's tightly wedged, and you have to work to extract it. Carrying it over to one of the lanterns, you examine the object. It's a gold button from an army officer's mess uniform. One belonging to the Prince of Wales' own light horse. Check off clue L. Pick a number and add your intuition. Needing a 7, getting a 7. 6 plus 1, 349. Using the method of deductive reasoning Holmes has discussed with you, you reason that the button must have been lying close to the bomb to have it been wedged so tightly by the force of the blast. Also, it must have been dropped shortly before the explosion because had it lain on the open during the high-traffic hours... It would have certainly been claimed by an alert passerby because of the gold content. The button did not come from Jonathan's uniform because the buttons on the mess uniform of the Bengal Lancers, because the buttons on the mess uniform of the Bengal Lancers, Jonathan's regiment, are very different from this one. This button, you are certain, is one from the Light Horse Regiment at Kingston. An officer of that regiment must have been here last night. Examining it closely, you reason that the owner must have been engaged in some heavy physical activity which tore the button from his uniform. The threads on the back are snapped, not frayed, not worn thin. Further, the person who lost it must have been in a state of considerable agitation, not to notice that such an expensive item was missing from his uniform, especially since the button must have lain in plain sight before it was driven under the stairs by the explosion. Check off deduction 1 and turn to 128. You know the kind of person who might uh, not notice an expensive item missing from their uniform? A drunk? Mmm. Barely so. Me. I'm not Been a drinking? drunk. <laughs> but I also wouldn't notice things. <laughs> I'm busy. I wouldn't worry about a button. I'm too busy drinking. <laughs> 128. Uh, you pause to consider what course of action to take. Uh, If you check clue M and or result 3 but not clue L. No, right? No, none of that sounds familiar. It None of that. Well, I mean, L we just got, but it says, but not yeah. uh, clue L. What I have to guess here is uh, this would be the ability to find the button if we'd otherwise failed to find the button. Mm, perhaps. All right. Based on clues that we might be looking for in this area. 213. You must seek Holmes's assistance. <laughs> uh, if you check clues I, J, and K, but not L, irrelevant. If you checked L, yes, 190. Otherwise, 255. So 190 it is. Mm-hmm. You decide to visit Sherlock Holmes for advice. Mrs. Hudson answers your knock, informing you that Mr. Holmes is upstairs in his sitting room. You climb the stairs and find him at loggerheads over his own case, and quite pleased to get his mind off it for a time. He asks you to tell him what you've found. You relate your findings in great detail and wait to hear what he has to say. May I see the button? He asks. You dig it out of your pocket, and you hand it to him. Give me a full description of the regiment's mess uniform, please. He demands, rather preemptorily. You know he's not being impolite, rather. His brusque manner masks an intense interest. 
You describe the uniform in as much detail as you can remember, and when you finish, he takes out a magnifying glass, a compass, and a pen and paper. As you watch, he makes measurements on the face of the button and then writes furiously, referring to a mathematics text from time to time. I wonder what he's doing. Ha! He crows at last. I have it. What do you mean, Mr. Holmes? You ask apprehensively. Have what? Have I made a mistake in my deductions? No. He replies. Your deductions were fine as far as they went, but I've carried them a step further. Observe. Note the wear marks on the face of the button. Here, use my glass. He laughs as you squint trying to see the marks. <laughs> they are faint, but you can see them there. Now that he's pointed them out, you can see them. Those marks are from an officer's silver-edged cross belt. He continues. They lie at a precise angle, just so, permitting the estimate of the height of the wearer. A relatively large angle from the vertical points of a man to the less-than-average height, and with a slight arc in the diagonal marks indicate he is a man of some girth. Also, the button is worn, suggesting the owner has seen many years of service. In sum, the man you are looking for is just over 5 foot 4 inches in height, weighs approximately 170 pounds, and has at least 20 years of active service. Do you know anyone who fits that description? Check off clue N. If you've checked clue H... Have we? Turn to 379. Uh, we have not. Otherwise, if you suspect the RSM, 42, Major Dillon, 432, Colonel Sterling, 222. The uh, only one of these characters that were described as short or stout or uh, just short or stout, frankly, uh, is Major Dillon. 432, then. You are certain in your heart that Major Dillon is an important and sinister key to this case. But you do need proof to convince the police. Also, you still have no clue as to the circumstances surrounding Jonathan's death. Taking your leave of Holmes, you catch the next train to Kingston. If you've not already checked deduction two, do so now. We we have you. Uh, no, we hadn't done previously. Oh. That's a deduction. So the deductions oh, and yeah. decisions are actually different in this book. Yeah. Oh, it's going back. Wasn't that like that originally? So it always partitioned them out as two elements. However, they were always one list of just ordered numbers. But now I have deductions, decisions, and results. So 1 through 10, 1 through 10, and then uh, I through X for the results. Oh, no. <laughs> Three, 319. Before the hiccups claim you. Yes, before I perish. During the ride to Kingston, you lay your plans. You know the officers of the regiment traditionally wear their mess uniforms at the supper meal on Friday evenings. Perhaps you'll find that Major Dillon is missing a major button on his jacket, thus proving and providing proof to back your deductions. Pick a number. Note, add nothing. 2 to 8, blank. 9 to 12, blank. That is a 9. Just a <gasps> flat 9, no pluses or anything. So I, uh, okay, 291. You catch him. <laughs> you win. You return to your quarters to prepare for the officer's regimental dinner. Entering the mess early, you stand where you can watch the door, making polite conversation with the other junior officers. Just as the regimental trumpeters march in to summon everyone to the table, you see him. Major Dillon has entered by a side door and is standing at the bar, throwing down a stiff drink. You walk over to him. Good evening, sir. You say in greeting. He nods to keep from speaking, then downs another whiskey. You make no further attempt to engage him in conversation, taking time to examine his uniform. Pick a number and add your observation. Needing a seven. 
getting an A. I would feel like this would be an easier check if we're looking if there's a missing button. But mm -hmm. but we got it anyway, so it doesn't matter. I mean, I feel like on a bad day, if I knew I was looking if someone's missing a button, I feel like I'd find out pretty fast. You examine the buttons carefully, but you do not see anything untoward. Confused, you're about to walk away when Major Dillon turns to order another drink. And as he twists around, his belt sash gaps open, revealing the button underneath it. You feel your pulse begin to pound. You were right. There rests the proof of your deductions, gleaming brightly and brand new from under the sash. Dylan's a crafty old fox. He did lose the button under his crossbow at Paddington Station, but he replaced it with the, the old button from beneath his sash. As a result, all the visible buttons appear worn. The new button was sewn under the sash where it would be out of sight. But what now? The button by itself is certainly not enough evidence to convince the police of anything. You must find supporting evidence. And the only two places where you can think to look are in Major Dillon's office. Here at the Keep. And his house in Kingston, where he lives with his wife. If you search Major Dillon's house in Kingston, check decision 10, turn to 132. If you search the office in the Keep, 9 and turn to 398. Hmm. Well, I mean, here. So we would be able to, I guess, I wonder if that would threaten more uh, detection if we tried to check the keep while he's here. True, true, true. That's the only lean I have in either direction. Well, actually, I also have a lean in the other direction, which is we would yeah. have more time to check the keep considering we're here. Yeah, and also maybe his wife's home. Ooh, also true, also true. He lives there. With his wife. But why would he keep... It, it seemed, I, I wonder if the evidence is less likely to be here than at home. If he know, was one. already trying to hide it, noted by the fact that he swapped the buttons so that the visible ones would all appear worn, then I can only imagine he was also similarly... Uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Diligent in hiding diligent. evidence here. He's majorly diligent. <gasps> we got him. Cuff him. <laughs> I think we should check his rhymes. house. Yeah, I mean, it's also closer. 132 is the next page over. You know where Major Dillon lives, having been to dinner at his house with Jonathan several times, several weeks previously. It's a spacious dwelling on a quiet residential street in Kingston. The rear of the house faces onto a small garden, lovingly tended to by Dylan's wife. It is through the garden that you plan to enter the house. The stone wall surrounding the garden is only a hindrance, being less than five feet high. You climb over the wall, and trying not to leave deep footprints in the flower beds, creep over to a rear window. It's latched, but not locked, and you use your penknife to disengage the latch. Then you swing the window open, and you climb inside. If you haven't checked decision 10, do so now. Pick a number and add your artifice... Needing an 8, getting an 11, sneaky sneak, sneaky sneak, 278. You find yourself standing in a small parlor. You listen carefully, but hear no evidence of anyone in the house. Major Dillon is evidently not at home, and his wife is probably visiting relatives. You pull the curtains, light a candle, and begin your search. After an hour, you're forced to admit defeat. If there's evidence hidden here, you can't find it. You're about to leave when you see a copy of today's standard on a table in the front hall. It's open to the personals, and scanning the page, you find a pencil mark next to an announcement of tonight's general membership meeting at the Leonidas Club. Turn to 458. Leaving the way you came, you ponder what to do next. You search Dylan's office at the keep, or go into London to investigate the Leonidas Club. 
I think we should probably go for the Leonidas Club at this point, because not only do we have the, the stubs that point to it, we also know that Dylan uh, knew about that stub in some fashion. True. True. And we also just got the clue here that he has some special interest in the General Assembly there tonight. Very true. 174. You decide to pay a visit to the Leonidas Club, since it may provide answers to Jonathan's activities. You know very little about this club, but most of the better clubs in London are for the exclusive use of their very restrictive memberships. Deciding to try, you hail a cab, and you drive up to the entrance. Like many others, the Leonidas Club is not imposing from the outside, conveying an image of genteel dignity and understated elegance. It nestles between a hotel and a private residence, all rising three stories above the rest. Only a small brass plaque below the bell pull in identifies it as the Leonidas Club. Check off Result X if you wish to question the club steward, 320. Bluff your way in, 473, or break into the club, 276. Whew. Them some choices. I'm happy with any of these, frankly. I don't know which would be best for this club. True. I all I mean very restrictive. I almost imagine that the only possibility is trying to break in. Probably. We could try a bluff and then maybe have to break in anyways. But maybe if you bluff and fail. You get recognized. Yeah. So that's the that's the Q of the D, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I'm happy to break in. I'm happy to try. Let's do it. Let's just, let's let's be bad. Let's be bad. Oh, shoot. I clicked and I'm a million away. 278? 276. 276. Okay. You find a pub with a view of the club and settle down to wait until the night has fallen. Once it's dark, you go around the block and enter the, the mews, which run between the rear of the buildings on either side. Usually deliveries are made to the kitchens and trash is picked up there. But tonight you hope it'll serve a different purpose. You look carefully at the wall, which separates the club from the mews and... Find the door unlocked. Once through that obstacle, you manage to clamber up back a back staircase to find an unlocked window on the third floor. Quietly, you slide it open. You enter. Add artifice, needing a seven. Uh, I got a snake eyes. <gasps> what? Where are we going? Is this going to be bad or something? 333. What, is getting caught breaking in bad? Are we breaking bad? We're breaking in badly. I'll say that much. As you climb silently in the window, you feel strong arms grabbing you, and before you regain your balance, something hard crashes against your head, and everything goes black. Turn to 304. <laughs> turn to 14. You turn to page 14. You come to consciousness just as a heavy door swings shut. Staggering to your feet, you grope your way through the darkened room to the door, only to find that it's locked from the outside. You bang on it, and a moment later, a panel slides open at eye level. Think we can keep you out of trouble until Scotland Yard comes to collect you, Lieutenant. Growls RSM Peter Austin. You can bloody well kiss your army career goodbye, too. Dejected, you realize that it'll be up to Sherlock Holmes to solve the case now. He will ensure that Jonathan's murderer is brought to justice. If you begin again, turn to 308, or just read the solution on 430. What? Wow. We failed to break in, and therefore we have lost. Interesting. 
It, it makes sense that there is a fail condition in here that isn't just you missed all of the clues True. and got to the end of the book. So here's my pitch. Yes. When we record tomorrow mm -hmm. to finish this episode, we go try something that isn't breaking in. <laughs> yeah. I think that that is probably a better... We'll pretend that we begin again and got everything exactly up to where we are, and we'll hopefully see a different path through instead of just having it solved for us exactly i'm yeah. i'm keen to as well because yeah. I think there's much more to resolve here yeah basically how we how we did some grail quest stuff and uh and so uh, a couple of a couple of the goosebumps i mean well pretty much all pretty much all the goosebumps there's a lot of dying in that it's kind of a big part mm -hmm. of it so all right let's do that we are back from the dead to solve the crime we uh we cannot be killed well, we still have this active case. True gun mm -hmm. shoots. Uh, so, we, we, we try to break into the club. I, I'm yeah. not going to say we shouldn't try to do that again. But I will say maybe we should try one of the other two options first and only get back to, like, RNG save scumming when we have no other choice. Yeah, exceptionally fair. So, so do we question or do we bluff? I feel like let's try, let's try and bluff, right? Yeah, I mean, hey. look, we'll, let's go from biggest to smallest crime. Yeah, just like I do every day. I start up, start up my day, little bit of Grand Theft Auto, and oh. I work my way down to jaywalking, and then I work my way down to like not putting a toilet paper roll back in the bathroom when it's empty you know? i actually think that's the worst one i actually think that is worse than jaywalking by a lot uh -huh. but it is definitely not a crime you know what reps it should be a crime cuff him sam say... this whole podcast was just to get your confession on tape th th so this is something that i don't think it, it might be too <laughs> niche for podcasts but i know it's relevant to you but it's a thing that grace and i do uh where you know the tv show the mole you have mentioned mm. that you have seen. And a, a thing that they said on this show a lot, because there's basically, there was what there was only one, yeah, one mole, one person mm. uh, in a house that was basically an imposter. They were, they were sussy, uh, whatever. And a thing that everyone in the house would say is that's mole behavior. You know, that, that they said that so often, like they would do something like that's mole behavior. And mm -hmm. you probably see where I'm going with it. Whenever, one of us forgets to put the toilet paper back in. We go, we tell them that it's, that it's mole behavior. <laughs> because it's it's something that only an imposter would do. And mm -hmm. it's gotten... It's I gotten know, you didn't advanced. really use the toilet. Yeah. It, it, I got you. It's gotten pretty advanced to the point where there was a time where I didn't... I saw it, I didn't even replace the roll, and I just wrote out a note that said, this is mole behavior. <laughs> And I didn't replace it. I was like, nope. <laughs> Mole behavior. So, anyways. Okay, we should turn to 473. I just thought you might like to know as a someone who and has I confirmed do. watched the mole. <laughs> that is true. I will probably end up adapting this at some point in my relationship as well. It's <clears throat> my... It, uh, of my stupid little things that we do, it's probably my favorite. Uh highly recommended <laughs> anyways 473 wait is this right yes yeah 
You spring from your cab, paying the driver with alacrity as you attempt to convey the unseen to unseen onlookers the impression of a man on an important mission. Not wrong, though, but you stride quickly to the entrance and give a, the bell a vigorous pull. In seconds, the door swings open to reveal the starched and unforgiving figure of the club steward. Quickly, man! You say? I must speak to one of your members. It is a matter of utmost urgency. And with which member did you wish to speak, sir? The steward asks frostily. Colonel Steward! You declare, risking a ranging shot. That name is unknown to me, sir. The steward replies, beginning to close the door. He must be here. I'm quite certain that I saw him enter not five minutes ago. I must see him. Colonel Sterling is not a member, sir. The steward replies firmly. Now, if you would be so good as to leave. He pushes the door shut. You attempt to break into the club. <laughs> 276. If you visit... we So we were right mm -hmm. that that was going to be where we got back to. Or if you visit Sherlock Holmes 146... So it doesn't give us the option... Well, I guess it's fair that it doesn't give us the option now to try and question. <laughs> Excuse me, I lied. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually here for me. I'm a member. This was an honesty sting operation. You've passed. Now I have some questions. Uh, should we... Oh, God, meh. Should we just talk to Sherlock Holmes, I guess, at this point? I think so. I think that's the most Yeah, reasonable. as much as it's... I would definitely prefer to attempt to break in, I think... Again, resorting to RNG saves coming being the last possible option is what I would prefer. Yes, exactly. And keep that in mind. You feel fortunate to find Sherlock Holmes at home, though you're disappointed that Dr. Watson is absent. You tell Holmes what you've discovered, knowing it is precious little. Only moments later come the words that you dread to hear. Lieutenant, I believe your investigation has come to an end. You've failed to uncover compelling evidence that will prove the dynamiters were not the culprits. The police will not heed suspicions, have you seen? Also, you've not identified any other person or group that might have committed crime. In conscience, I cannot encourage you to continue your investigation further. You have failed, not because of a lack of effort, but rather a lack of experience. I would suggest you begin again. If you begin again, 308, all the way back to the beginning, or just read the solution on 430. Yeah, I'm not so keen to do that one. So. That takes us back to the Leonidas Club. Do we want to question the club steward on 320? <laughs> I guess we have to do that. Otherwise, we're going to mm -hmm. have to. Otherwise, we have to save scum RNG rule, which I don't like. Mm-hmm. I'm glad we've it, it set seems, our terms already, though. Because, yeah, it would seem. Let's set the stage. It seems absolutely stupid to gate every possible option behind one die roll right yeah you wouldn't do i that. wonder if we've accidentally put us well i want to say accidentally put ourselves in this position but by choosing to come to the leonidas club it does look like uh we made an impactful decision to try and go towards the end game but the fact that there seems to only be one outcome here and i've flipped forward to 320 yeah. <laughs> the fact that there seems to be only one outcome here is uh, a little suspect. There should at least be like a, okay, this is looking a little bit weird. Maybe we go to some one of the other places we said was fine. But anyways. Yeah, exactly. 320. You stride to the entrance and give the bell a vigorous pull. And in seconds, the door swings open to reveal the starched and unforgiving figure of the club steward. 
I'm Lieutenant Charles Watson. You introduce yourself. One of the officers of my regiment was killed Thursday night, and I'm appointed to gather his personal effects for shipment to his family. I understand that he may have been a member here. Certainly, sir. The steward's face softens a bit. What was the man's name? Lieutenant John Wheeler. The steward shakes his head regretfully. I'm sorry, sir, but that name is unknown to me. The lieutenant was not a member of this club. I found a cloak check stub from his club, from this club, rather, in the pocket of his cloak. You reply. Perhaps he was a guest. I managed the guest register myself, sir. He was not a guest, nor was he a member. I cannot think how he came by one of our cloak check stubs, but he's never entered this club. Now, I'm afraid I must attend to my duties. He shuts the door firmly in your face. If you break into the club, 276. If you visit Sherlock Holmes, 146. So uh -huh. we kind of, now, we kind of have to break into the club. Yeah, no. our, <laughs> here are the totality of our options. We've arrived at Leonidas Club. We are capable of asking a question, trying to bluff, or breaking in. If we try to bluff, we can either break in or visit Sherlock, which ends the game. If we try and ask a question, we can either break in or visit Sherlock, which ends the game. And if we break in, guess what happens? <laughs> yeah, we try and break in. So uh, the good news is it is a, it's only an artifice check of seven. I mean, Mm -hmm. Again, thank God we're not Johnny Curbstomp with the minus on Artifice. No but kidding. I'm going to go ahead and roll two dice. I'll see what we get. I am I got an eight. So we do, we get, we're successful on the second one. Mm -hmm. So there we go. We, we've, we've done it, but it does feel weird and it feels strange that it's locked in that way. Yeah, exactly. The knowledge that we would otherwise have to stay here and roll forever or go back to the very start of the entire case, which eh, eh, that's not happening. Yeah. The other thing would be like going back super far and, and pivoting on uh, into a completely different location or something. But then there's mm -hmm. like some weirdness with like maybe we messed up some information somewhere down the line. We have like we shouldn't have certain clues that we have. So I think that the best call is to yeah go to go to the break in. So two fifty two fifty two right yes. Mm -hmm. You climb into the window as silently as you can, holding your breath as your foot comes down harder on the floor than you would have liked. Fortunately, this is a, this is a success. Fortunately, no one appears to have discovered you, and carefully you creep across the room and open the hallway door. You hear voices downstairs and decide you make to make your way down the stairs to investigate. On the second floor, you have a clear view of the front door. Members are arriving in droves, climbing the stairs to a meeting hall on the first floor. Something important must be happening, and you descend the stairs to follow the crowd into the room. Turn to 243. From the numbers present, you surmise that the meeting hall must be filled to overflowing. Everyone in the club appears to be in the meeting, and this pre presents a unique opportunity for you. Do you attend the meeting or look around the club while the meeting is in progress? Hmm. Attend the meeting, 324. Look around while it's in progress, 147. You have a pull? Um. I think they're both, they both could blow up in our face spectacularly. Yeah. They, they both feel like compelling sources of possible evidence, though. Like, we're not going to stumble into a full conspiracy by walking into that meeting, but we might get contextual information that helps us to decipher other people's motives and things like that. Looking around the club blindly while the meeting is in progress. Also, there is some threat, theoretically, to attending the meeting and someone going, eh, I don't recognize you. Mm -hmm. 
or I do recognize you. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Either. Uh, so maybe maybe we look around on 147 then, I guess. Let's give that a go. Our artifice has been doing so well so far today. Yeah, it didn't get us killed. Well, today, you're right. <laughs> you decide the opportunity to investigate the club is too opportune to squander. That's a good sentence. Slipping out the door, you climb the stairs. You know that clubs in London are often used by members while they're in the city. Rooms can be made available at a very attractive rate, provided arrangements are made in advance, and in this case, you're very interested in the identity of any out-of-town members. You discover that the second and third floors of the club contain a number of guest rooms. None of them appears equipped with locks, so you decide to look inside several of them. Pick a number and add your artifice. Needing a seven, getting another eight. Cutting it too close for comfort, for what it's worth. That's a success, 302. You enter a room on the second floor at the back, closing the door behind you. The room is large, but obviously equipped as a single residence. It's tastefully furnished. You can imagine a member staying here and might live comfortably indeed. Unfortunately, the room is currently unoccupied. The next three rooms you check are also empty, and you can't risk searching any more. For the chance of a discovery is growing by the minute. You must make a decision about what to do next. Visit Sherlock Holmes on 13435 or members meeting on 324. I mean... 324, I guess. Mm-hmm. I have a bad feeling. <laughs> yeah. The walls feel like they're closing in. Making your way through the entrance as unobtrusively as possible, you take an opportunity to look around. The meeting hall runs the full length of the building, with one end opening onto the street and the other onto the garden. You estimate the room to be more than 100 feet long and well over 50 feet wide. The arched ceilings and ceramic-tiled columns give it a cathedral-like appearance. Heavy drapes are drawn over the windows on either end, revealing heraldic symbols sewn in heavy gold thread. Countless battle flags will line the wall like dusty sentinels, and together they cast the hall in a deep shadow, emphasizing the solemnity of the occasion. Many of the members are seated, awaiting the commencement of the ceremonies. Others mill about, exchanging pleasantries. You take advantage of this situation to find a dark corner in the back with good view. Pick a number and add your intuition for hiding. Oh, okay, that's a nine. I needed a seven, got a nine. To 450 we go. I... I, 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 this is so precarious. Mm-hmm. It does feel like any of these rolls is going to immediately kill us, but that might just be because we've had a recent experience. Yeah. Moments after you've settled yourself, you discover that the meeting is about to begin. The members still standing either move to the rear, partially obstructing your view, or find their seats. The sound of conversation dies, and the hall grows very quiet. The gathering faces a dais, such as one might find in a church. A table sits on the dais, covered by a white tablecloth, and lying on the table there are objects that you're too far away to see. The light in the hall dims as the gas lamps are extinguished, leaving only the shadowy light of a massive standing candelabra on either end of the room, and sconces along the walls. The hush deepens as high double doors along one wall swing open, with six men marching in, four of them in mess uniforms, and one of the most, of one of the most prestigious regiments of the British Army. The remaining two are naval officers, also in dress uniform. They march down the center aisle, past you, and towards the front of the hall. Your eyes are drawn to the table at the center. There are men quietly standing behind the table, five who are were not there just seconds ago, masked and wearing long, ornately embroidered and jewel-studded capes, the capes gleaming red and blue as rubies and sapphires reflecting the lights of the candles. 
The images on the capes are difficult to see from where you sit, but you make out the shapes of crusader crosses and a family of crests of some of the most noble lines in Britain. The marching men come to a halt just in front of the masked figures, six boot heels crashing to the floor as they stand to rigid attention. You hear a low murmur from one of the unmasked figures and see his mouth move as he speaks to the uniform group in front of him. We do. Answer three of the six in loud voices. You're too far back to hear both sides of the conversation. If you attempt to move forward, 142. If you stay where you are, 161. Oh, it's so precarious. I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen? We die? All right, 142. Is that what you said? I'm yeah. down. At this point, we kind of have to push it. I no longer fear death. Yeah. <laughs> It's imperative for you to see and hear as much of what happens here as possible. I mean, because a lot of our, half of our fail states have been, I mean, you don't got nothing, dude. So mm -hmm. we need something. Exactly. The success of your investigation hinges upon this. Now that you've learned some sort of secret societies housed in this club, you suspect that the issues may be even larger than you suspected. Pick a number and add your artifice. Needing a seven or higher. Oh, getting a seven. Exactly. <gasps> okay. Stop it. Stop it! 428. You edge forward through the crowd at the back of the hall, muttering apologies. The men you pass are so intent on the ceremony that they barely notice you. Finally, you're close enough to hear the words spoken by the participants, the ceremony continuing, for... For that is what you're witnessing, a membership ceremony. As you watch, the candidates are instructed by the masked figures at the front and then asked to swear an oath. The candidates are backed by sponsors carrying naked swords in their hand, evidence of the fate which must have lain in store for those who answered improperly in the past. You suspect the implied threat, they should really have that for like, you know, if they just had that in schools, I mm -hmm. think like test scores would be really improved. If while the, the tests were being taken, the teacher was just holding a very long two-hander, mm -hmm. just staring straight ahead, I think scores would go up. And... and We'd also give a giant boost to our psychopharmacology departments across the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And our blacksmiths. They've been out of work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not to mention the uh, psychopharmacology blacksmiths. They're going to be absolutely feasting. Ooh, damn. Ugh. Working both sides of the street there. Yeah. Uh, boy, 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 where was I? You suspect the implied threat is only ritual now because the sponsors handle their swords self-consciously. Mm. And the blades are not razor-sharp battle weapons, but dull dress sabers. The spokesman begins. Know ye, then, that we are the conquerors, by whose blood the kings of this land purchase their glorious victories, the instrument of their terrible will. It is our fate to serve in the capacity we know best, to ride as the four horsemen of the apocalypse upon any who seek to ravage those we are sworn to protect. It is our fate to shield the nation we hold dear from the savages at the gate. As Leonidas, the Aegean king of Sparta, who held fast at Thermopylae, we shall not allow them to pass. Another of the leader intones. We are of an ancient pact. The conquerors, we spring from the days of the Crusades, when brother knights sought to hold back the onrushing darkness with the only means at their disposal, their blood upon the sacred ground. 
When king fought with king in petty quarrels over events of no import, and spent lives of their liegemen like wastrels, heedless of their sacrifice, then a pact was formed among the hosts. A third masked leader takes up the ritual. Kings we shall follow, but not blindly. Where they lead upon the high road of England's destiny, then shall we follow, loyal and with unquestioning obedience. But when the kings turn their back upon the vows they have sworn to God in England, then shall we betray our higher trust? No, for our duty is a higher course, and it lies in service to the land. We shall not betray that trust. And even kings we shall not permit to pass. Then a fourth requests the vows of the candidates. Do you swear allegiance to the higher course, the trust purchased by the blood of your brothers? We do! The answers of the candidates comes in a chorus. Do you stand ready to sacrifice your lives in service to the land? We do! Do you swear to follow our sovereign who rules by divine right, so long as she honors the best interests of the nation? We do! And do you swear allegiance to the Council of Five in all matters in which the interests of the nation are paramount? We do! Comes the ragged response from most of the candidates, but the naval officer hesitates, clearly troubled by the vow. The room is suddenly electric with tension, but after a harsh whisper from his sponsor, the young man completes the ritual, and a collective sigh of relief rises from the gathering. We have to use our swords? Oh no. It begins to come together for you now. You can see Jonathan here, dressed in his mess uniform, proudly set to join the prestigious club. But Jonathan, stubborn as he was, would never have sworn an oath he could not accept, regardless of the consequence. You know that he never would have sworn this oath. The consequence of his refusal was death. The leader of the masked figures then ceremoniously confers membership on the candidates. At his command, they turn and face the audience, who welcome them into the club with an enthusiastic round of applause. A moment later, the new members are shown, in the, shown to the seats in the front row, and the leader addresses the membership in earnest tones, announcing that it is time to discuss a tragic event. Then he gives a signal, and the double doors swing wide once more, and out of the bright light marches a familiar figure of Major... Stephen Dillon. If you've checked clue cue, pick then pick a number and add your intuition. Mm. Ha, we have, Unfortunately, right? we have not, no. Really? Yeah, we have uh, P, which is oh, uh, button Dillon switch, the one directly before Q. Oh, man. All right. Then we will turn to 311 to perish. Major Dillon walks unsteadily towards the council leaders. He stops in front of the masked group, stands to attention, and in a loud voice says, Brother Stephen Dillon requests the indulgence of the Council of Five on the matter of evidence events rather previous to this evening. You have to strain to hear him in spite of the loudness uh, which he speaks because of the rising murmur of conversation among the members. If you move closer, 383. If you stay where you are, 165. He knows us. I feel he like 165 could be risky. You mean 386 is risky? No, no, no. I mean, he, he knows us, so moving closer, I imagine, could be risky. Yeah, which is on 383. Oh. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. He's also, he is talking loud enough for, 
you know, a lot of for us to hear him right now. I, 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 there could be benefit in staying. Oh. <laughs> no, you're right. Let's keep going. Let's push on. What you think? Closer. Yeah. Hasn't oh, gone bad so far. God. All right. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Brother. The councilman, council spokesman begins. You have called here, been called here rather, to discuss a grave matter. The matter of your preemptory action in the death of candidate brother Wheeler. Such action undertaken without council approval is calls for censure. What say you? Leader, it was I who proposed him for membership, and it was, of course, my responsibility to correct the error, replies Dylan. We must preserve the secrecy of the cause at all costs. Brother, it has been suggested that your judgment has become clouded because of your heavy drinking. The leader points out sternly. It has been further suggested your poor judgment in this matter is only the latest and most unfortunate example of many similar incidents in the past year. Your fitness to remain at your post is now in question. My leader! Dylan answers, the back of his neck stiff with anger. My drinking is my own affair and should not be the cause of anyone else's concern. Uh, it does not interfere with my duties in any regard, as those who know me best can at least attest to if you should ask. Surely my loyalty to the cause is not in question here. While I admit my error in this incident, it should not reflect upon my past service, nor should it be taken as an indication of my present abilities. I have loyally served this cause for twenty years. This incident is of no lasting importance. How can you say that? The leader asks, a note of rising incredulity in his voice. Do you not know that we, as a group, stand to lose the backing of... Very influential individuals because of your precipitous action. That would be an unmitigated disaster for our cause. Lieutenant Wheeler's family has powerful allies in government. Allies we desperately need. One of them in particular is calling for your head, and I, for one, am unconvinced we shouldn't give it to him. Leader! Dylan scoffs, not backing down. We did well enough with before without all this political maneuvering. We do not need it now. You and your council have neglected the very reason for our existence and your desire to embroil our society in politics. Hold your tongue, brother. The leader replies. Though you have not the vision to see, there is wisdom in our course. Do you think that we alone can stand against Parliament? If we do not have the might to enforce our wishes, our heads shall surely decorate the beef-eaters' pikes on the tower wall. To us, to many... What we plan here would be treason, he continues. Though we are sworn to our ancient oath to destroy the rot infesting our land, there will be opposition. Powerful opposition. We cannot permit you to add to those enemies through unthinking acts. You will abide by the decisions made by the Council of Five or risk the censure. And I say I did what was necessary. Dylan maintains stubbornly, his tone harsh. I will abide the council's decisions in other matters, and I take full responsibility for bringing the traitor here. Since it was my sin, it was for me to correct it. And let the retribution fall upon my head if it must. The secrecy of the cause must be preserved if we are to prevail. With that, he spins on his heel and stalks from the room, every line of his body screaming defiance. 
check clue T and turn to 382. Okay, so we're in a, a two-part crime, clearly. Yes. If we this early get our confession, we now have a much larger case at hand that we have to solve. Perhaps who's the leader? Mmm. Don't know. We'll see. The meeting ends on that confused note as the members stand looking after Dylan. You stand too, craning your neck, but to, to see what has become of the council members. But by the time you're able to see through the crowd, they've disappeared. The members begin to filter out of the hall. You have what you came for. You know who killed Jonathan, but you've heard it from the murderer's lips. But as much as it pains to admit it, Jonathan's death may not be the central issue now. I mean, yeah. It seems another sinister group plots treason. Or this sinister group plots treason. You could take your information to the police, but would they believe you? Or would they demand more tangible proof of what you've heard? Certainly, there are important people here tonight, and the fact that the council leaders are masked argues that they're well known. If it comes to a contest of your word against all of theirs, yours will not count for much. Still, you have a place to start, and you intend to get proof that you need. Pick a number and add your artifice, only needing a five. Mm hmm. Don't roll the worst. Whoa! Whoa, and only getting a five. <laughs> I did not roll the worst. I did not roll the worst. This is uncomfortable. You fall in line behind the crowd to make your way undetected into the foyer. You spy Dylan standing to one side talking animated to two of the members. You stay back as far as you can, always keeping several people between you. And after a moment, he turns to walk towards the bar. If you stay to watch Dylan, 494. If you leave to wait and follow Dylan, 417. I, I just don't think we'd learn anything more by looking at him right now. It's true. Unless... Like, what's he gonna... <laughs> he's gonna confess to another crime in public while we watch him? Yeah, my my only thing would would be that 494 keeps us here, and it sounds like 417 doesn't that's my only pull towards mm. 494 out of these if it's just face value i prefer 417 follow wait and follow mm -hmm. yeah i don't know so maybe we maybe do 417 on that Sounds yeah like that's where you're i kind of i kind of like uh i <laughs> although we only got one clue filled in here we did get a lot of information and i kind it's of like the idea of bouncing yeah you make your way outside and walk across the street to find a dark spot between the street lamps then you wait for Major Dylan to come out. If you can get him alone, you may be able to get the proof that you need. Pick a number and add your observation, needing an 8. We've been rolling so bad and not anymore. We, we got an 11. 10 plus 1. We're good. Yeah. 2 of 5. We got this one. Oof. Huh. <laughs> After a wait of several hours, you see Dylan weaving his way out of the club to hail a four-wheeler coming down the street. The night air has become cold, and once inside the cab, he raises the windows before leading out the other side to give the driver instructions. Pick a number and add your observation, needing an eight again. Now, we've surely we've gotten all the bad rolls out of the way. Mm-hmm. And we have. That is a nine plus one. That is a ten. We are good. 329. Oh, that's why we rolled poorly. <laughs> Roll so many successful checks to get through the nice club successfully. Yeah. As you leave from your hiding place, you detect movement in the shadows further down the street, and looking closely in the area between the next two street lamps, you see a shadowy figure of a man. You sink back further into the darkness and remain motionless. As Dylan's cab passes, the man strides swiftly into the street and hops to the back of a four-wheeler where the driver cannot see him. Just for a second, 
As the cab passes under the light of the street lamp, his face turns towards you, and you could swear that it's RSM Peter Austin. If you go in another cab, 187, if you go to the police, 104. The police won't believe us at this point. We're already very, very clear on that. We don't have enough, 187. Stunned, you almost let the four-wheeler get away. The coach rounds the corner before you're jarred out of your trance. Quickly, you race down the street, arriving just as a handsome clatters in the intersection, and the driver's clearly headed home, but you convince him to carry one more fare, and together you set off to follow Dylan and the RSM. Turn to 241. In your handsome, you follow Dylan's cab to a pub not three blocks away. You order your driver to pull over while you watch Dylan weave his way into the pub. The RSM follows him a moment later, and paying your driver, you go to the window of the pub and peer inside. Dylan is drinking whiskey at the bar while the RSM is sitting across the room in a dim corner, a mug in his hand. It looks to you as if the RSM is watching Dylan, although you do not believe the Major's aware of the RSM's presence. Turn to 238. Think he's gonna get... bopped? Yeah, I do. Interesting. Dylan proceeds to get very drunk, and then eventually leaves in another cab, followed by the RSM. If you follow them, 167, or you could go to the police, 104. I, again, I don't know why they would believe us now. We have no more evidence. Mm-hmm. But it is a different page, I think. It's a it is. Page. Still, I, we don't have, we don't, we don't have anything more we'd say other than just source, just trust me, bro. Mm-hmm. You're close enough to Dylan when he exits the pub nearly an hour later to hear him give the driver instructions to take him to Waterloo Station. You surmise that he's going home, the RSM following him out of the pub a moment later, and dashes down the street to the only other cab in sight. Now you have a problem. You'll not be able to keep up to the cabs on foot, and there's no others in the vicinity. You do, however, know their destination. You walk quickly to the nearest underground station and take the train to the stop closest to the Waterloo line. There, you are lucky enough to find a cab to take you the rest of the way. You actually arrive before either Dylan or the RSM. Turn to 369. The amount of successful roles that we've had to get one after another to be on this path, uh, ignoring the, the initial one sure. failing in a previous yeah. <laughs> lifetime, but uh, the, the amount of successes we've had to get in a row does make me feel like this path might be the quick kill. Like we literally watch this murder happen and then go report it. <laughs> yeah, that could be. Dylan's cab clatters up a few minutes later. He dismounts unsteadily, pays the driver, and walks into Waterloo Station to buy his train ticket. The RSM follows a moment later, still keeping to the shadows. Dylan then walks to the proper gate, boards the train, and settles himself in a compartment. The RSM watching when the train pulls out of the station, leaves and hails another cab, a four-wheeler this time. Turn to 370, the very next page. You are very interested in discovering the identity of those to whom the RSM will render his report. You hop on the back of the cab and wait to see where it'll take you, though you can already guess. Sure enough, less than half an hour later, the cab pulls in front of the Leonidas Club and the RSM dismounts and goes inside. If you follow him, 209. If you wait from outside, 257. Done a lot of waiting, so... I don't know. I mean... Where are you at? Well, you didn't want to leave the club. We, we're here given an opportunity to go back in. I, I want to go in. Let's do it. <laughs> you wait for several minutes, then go up to the door and pull the bell cord. After a moment, the door is opened by a maid in a housecoat. You decide to bluff your way inside, sensing that she is sleepy and not inclined to argue. Relate. <laughs> Pick a number and add your artifice bonus. Needing a six or better. Holy raps. Stop if you've heard of this one before. Six, Six. exact. 
Uh, yep. This is getting this is, this is too stressful. 106. Oh, the maid does not put up much of an argument when you tell her that you're an out-of-town member staying in one of the guest rooms. She allows you inside and asks if you would care for a tea. When you refuse, she gratefully goes back to bed. The club is deserted. Everyone is asleep except for the RSM and the, to those who he is reporting. You cannot tell which room he lies in, so you settle down in a dark corner to wait. Ten minutes later, your patience is rewarded when you hear the door to the meeting room close with the RSM coming down the stairs, opening a panel closet, retrieving his hat, and let, letting himself outside. If you follow the RSM 214, if you go upstairs to the meeting room 164, uh, huh. They're asking us to leave again. To go big or go home? It feels like we should go big. It's true. All right. I... <laughs> Okay, I'm scared. Okay, 164. Silently, you go up to the first floor, find a hiding place, and wait to see who comes out of the meeting room. After five minutes, you decide that no one's going to come out. Five minutes? We've been waiting for, like, all day. We've been literally waiting for hours and hours for people all day. Five minutes is... Okay. You walk over to the door and put your ear on it. Silence. Turn to 447. Clenching butt. Carefully, you open the door and enter the room, and it's empty. This puzzles you, because from your vantage point outside, you could see both exits. Did the RSM leave a note to someone? You turn the oil lamp a little and risk lighting one of the gas lamps, but you find no evidence of a message. You turn off the lamps and leave the room. Leaving the Leonidas Club, you decide that nothing more will be gained here tonight, and warily make your way to 221 Baker Street, where you tumble into bed. You awaken early the next morning, shaving and changing into the fresh shirt that Dr. Watson left for you. After hearty breakfast prepared by Mrs. Hudson, you set off for the Scotland Yard. You wish you had the opportunity to discuss the matter of the RSM and Dylan with your cousin Mr. and Mr. Holmes, but Mrs. Hudson claims that they went out and did not return last night. Turn to 520. Are they the leaders of the freaking cult? I feel like they've got to be, like, one or two of them. <laughs> God. Ooh, boy. You find a hansom to drive to Scotland Yard, and as the cab bumps along over the cobblestones, you consider your next move. It'll be tricky to convince the police that you're both serious and sane. You're not oh, oh no, overly impressed with any of the detectives who you've dealt with. According to Sherlock Holmes, Ethelney Jones is a pompous and condescending braggart, and Chief Inspector Maxwell Stern is even worse. For all his urbane manners. You decide you will choose Jones, as he's the lesser of two evils. The cab pulls up in front of Scotland Yard, and you jump out and hurriedly make your way up to Jones's office. You find the door locked, and a passing constable informs you that Jones has not yet arrived. You're at the point of deciding what to do next when the Chief Inspector Stern rounds the corner and sees you. Turn to 325. Good morning, Lieutenant, the Chief Inspector says with a cheery smile. How can I be of service today? Actually, I came to see Mr. Athelney Jones, Chief Inspector. You reply a little nervously. I have important information related to the bombing. The Chief Inspector's smile slips a little. Oh, well then, perhaps you'd better come with me, he says. I've sent Mr. Jones out of town on another case, and I doubt he'll be back before noon. You accompany the Chief Inspector to his office, and after he's shown you to your seat, to a seat and ordered an assistant to fetch you a cup of tea, he asks you to relate what you've learned. You tell him about Dylan and the evidence you've uncovered in Kingston and the Leonidas Club. As you speak, his face becomes grave, and you know that he believes you. Oh. <gasps> When you finish, he stands and, asking you to wait, leaves the office for a moment. You finish your tea and are at the point of asking the assistant for another when the chief inspector returns to the office with two burly constables at tow. 
Arrest that man. He orders, pointing at you. Uh, if you've checked results, seven, turn to 109. Have we? Uh, we have not, unfortunately. Otherwise, pick a number and add your communication, needing a seven. Getting, okay, getting an 11. That one's handy. Like a handle, handily uh, succeeded victory. 371. <laughs> you find yourself in a small cell in the basement of Scotland Yard after succeeding. <laughs> At first, you cannot understand it. You were certain that you managed to convince the chief inspector. The only possible explanation is that you succeeded too well. He did believe you, and that's why you're here. The chief inspector himself must be one of the council plotters, a member of the Leonidas Club, and he's neatly trapped you. You make an effort to get word to Sherlock Holmes, but your jailers are under orders not to speak with you, and your pleas are ignored, and finally, in desperation, you tell the man that brings you your supper that you're ready to confess, but you'll only tell your tale to Mr. Athelney Jones, the famous detective. The jailer snorts in derision, but goes off to get Jones, and a short time later, Jones arrives at your cell. He blinks at you in surprise. What's all this about a confession? A uh, confession of what? I'm a busy man. I have no time for pranks. You tell him what you told the chief inspector. You can see from Jones's face he appreciates the seriousness of the situation. Then you tell him your suspicions concerning the chief inspector. Pick a number and add your communication bonus. Needing an 8. Getting a 12. This feels Bank important. We it feels like otherwise we rot here. Yeah, uh, I... I think that is the case. Uh, 180. You see doubt in Jones's face and realize that he's struggling with a concept of a superior in league with conspirators and, and criminals. But in the end, your arguments win him over and he orders you to be released. And together you leave the building and set off for the rail station. Turn to 173. Boarding the train for Kingston, you and Athelney Jones lay your plans. If Jones succeeds in arresting Major Dillon, the entire treason's plot will be placed in jeopardy. With Dylan in custody, they will hesitate to act, and the ensuing investigation will bring down the Leonidas Club. You know that treason needs dark places to hatch and grow into maturity. The daylight you intend to bring on the affair will expose the conquerors and destroy their plot. Turn to 405. Jones commandeers a cab to take both of you to Dylan's house, but upon arrival, you find police already present. Getting out of the cab, Joan, wait, Jones asks you to wait and then walks over to the detective standing in the doorway. He speaks with the man for several minutes and then returns. Bad news, I'm afraid. He begins. Major Dillon's been murdered. His wife, returning from visiting her sister, has found him lying dead with a pistol in hand. From the condition of the house, the detective here thinks that he returned late last night and surprised a robber. However, I suspect we know the real truth. Yeah. You reply. They killed him because he was a risk. Now they stand to regain the support he cost them. This is truly bad news. Do you have any ideas? I don't believe it'll avail us to pursue the matter at Scotland Yard. Jones answers slowly. And I'm not yet ready to face the Chief Inspector. My own position is in jeopardy for releasing you. That leaves us one alternative. Yeah. Jones grimaces. <sighs> Sherlock Holmes. Turn to 493. This better not be... An end state. I would be furious. What? Your investigation ends in a partial success. With the evidence you've uncovered to date, Sherlock Holmes will swiftly solve this case. The plot against the realm will fall, but there's not enough evidence to destroy these plotters. 
The murderer, Dylan, is dead, but the reason for Jonathan's death will never become widely known. At the very least, you can write to Jonathan's father and tell him that his son died honorably, refusing to betray his country. If you begin the case anew, 308. If you want to read the solution, 430. Interesting, considering how many successes we had and the fact that we pretty much just went down the path. I, uh -huh. huh. Oh, boy. So this, oh, boy, indeed. That's a tricky one. That's a tricky one. I'll admit there is a non-zero part of my body that's like, we got stomped yeah. by the book. I think rather that, than necessarily the puzzle, but we got stumped. Yeah, and I'm also... I think it's a non... It, it, it's not the perfect ending, but, like, the questions we actually... Or the situations we might be faced with a book where there's one right path. Mm -hmm. we, it, for all we know, this could be an only one right way kind of a situation. And it could result... Be, it could require us to, like, completely redo things. Mm-hmm from the ground up and i'm i'm happy i am happy with a partial success i think i think knowing that we did uncover we did what we needed to what we were supposed to do not our fault we found something new mm -hmm. i think that i am happy i am happy with seeing the solution i am too as much as it ties my stomach up to say so we yeah. got the like the narrative solution here is Dylan is dead. Yes. Jonathan is valid. Like, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, venerated. Yes. Uh, we know that he wasn't, you know, the, the cause of this plot rather was trying to prevent it. And Sherlock swiftly solves the other side of the case. You know, yes. <laughs> Deus ex Sherlock. Yeah. I think it, I think it feels fine to me just knowing the fact that there's, there's a lot uh, the book is very very long and it could require us to retread like potentially even rereading certain pages and like going back super far and flipping a lot of yes no switches mm -hmm. and hoping that it's a better combo so I think that we do have to accept a partial success unless we want to mm -hmm. double and double the length of the episode which is optimistic I think that would be if the second one is immediately a success, which it might not even yep. be. So I'm, I'm happy to go to 430, just because we don't know what kind of format we're working with here. It seems like they've shaken it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. All right. It's nearly a week before you have an opportunity to visit 221B Baker Street. The occasion is a victory dinner, a veritable feast prepared in your honor by Mrs. Hudson. After supper, you follow Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson back to their sitting room, where you witness the most elaborate pipe-filling ritual that you've ever seen. Finally, the pipe is stoked to Holmes' satisfaction, and the three of you settle into armchairs near the fireplace that Dr. Watson then hands you a brandy snifter. You sit back, looking at your new friends, tobacco smoke wreathing them like angel hair. Then, as your thoughts turn to Jonathan, you raise your glass in a toast. To absent friends, you say as Holmes and Dr. Watson follow your example. May they rest in peace. There's a moment of respectful silence before Dr. Watson speaks. So, you were right all along. The bombing was not perpetrated by the dynamiters. I can't imagine it's not often that 
One of those fellows are innocent of the crimes they're accused of. Very astute of you. Don't you agree, Holmes? Yes, quite. Sherlock Holmes replies. An instinct for the hunt. And it goes to prove an old saying of mine that the little things determine the success or failure of an investigation. The bottom and the ticket stub. You agree? Yes, you're correct. Without the bottom, it would have been difficult to identify Major Dillon as the murderer, and without the ticket stub, I never would have learned of the Leonidas Club and the Secret Society. I led you to the Council of Five, comments Dr. Watson. And their plots will overthrow Parliament. Remarkable. Just remarkable. I do have one question, Mr. Holmes. You say? I do not understand how this organization came to believe they would actually accomplish their ends. It seems like a foolhardy plan to me at best. Uh, they would spark a civil war. An atmosphere of terror provides opportunities for ambitious men. Sherlock Holmes replies. In quieter times, their plan would have been madness. The good doctor can expand on that. He follows the political issues more closely than I. Oh, yeah, Dr. Watson replies. It's true. Politics is in large measure responsible for this plot. How so? You ask. When Mr. Gladstone proposed home rule for Ireland, many of his own party became disaffected with his leadership. Some defected to the Tories, but, as we know, a few had other plans. Did you know the council's spokesman was actually Stuart Blackpool, a minister without portfolio in the government? No. You reply. I did not. I've never had much interest in politics. Here, <laughs> here. Agrees Sherlock Holmes with a slight bow in your direction. Nevertheless... Continues Dr. Watson unperturbed. It was politics that provided the motivation for this crime. There was a refusal of a small number of ambitious and cunning men to put their trust in the democratic process. I fear they came closer to succeeding than either of you may be crediting. That may be, Doctor, says Holmes. But I noticed the newspapers did not mention the danger of a civil war. A telling point, in my opinion, rejoins Dr. Watson. Ah, uh, yes. You comment, noticing the thoughtful look in Holmes's eye. You may well be right. I must admit, I did not think of it that way. Still, all in all, a very fine investigation. Comments Sherlock Holmes. You have the makings of a detective. I hope you're not too disappointed in Ethel Lee Jones for enjoying all the credit in the newspapers. He smiles wryly. The price of success, I'm afraid. But if I know Dr. Watson as well as I think, I would wager he is already at work on a pamphlet to place the credit where it truly belongs. You know that you've just received the highest compliment with which Sherlock Holmes is capable of bestowing. It almost causes you to miss Dr. Watson's reply. True, I was working on a piece, but I doubt that it will see print for a long time. How so, Doctor? Holmes asks. I must confess I've been withholding information from both of you. Dr. Watson answers. I was just waiting for the proper moment. He carefully places his pipe on the stand next to his chair and walks over to the bookcase, where he takes a package from behind a row of books. He hands it to you and returns to his chair, retrieving his pipe and continuing. I had a visitor this afternoon. That is why I know I shall not be permitted to publish the case of the dynamiters now, if ever. And what is this? You ask, examining the small, plainly wrapped parcel in your hands. It's for you. He replies with a smug look on his face. You look at Holmes for a clue, but for once he appears just as much at sea as you. Shrugging, you open the package. Under the wrapping is a small velvet-covered box. Opening it, you find a rolled parchment lying on top of a metal. 
a medal that you've rarely seen, the Victoria Cross. On the back, it's inscribed with your name, and with shaking hands, you unfold the parchment that it reads. To our faithful servant, Lieutenant Samuel Charles Watson. It has come to our attention that you have rendered us a most valuable service to the Crown. It grieves us that you shall not receive public recognition for your brave and unselfish acts, but our ministers have advised against a ceremonious presentation in these unsettled times. In the future, these may, matters may become public knowledge, but in the interim, perhaps it will be of some comfort for you to know your Queen appreciates your efforts on her behalf. Victoria R. By the grace of God, Queen of the United Kingdom of England and Ireland. The end. Honestly, satisfying ending. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it's adding too much context to what we knew, except for the uh, the cause of the conspiratorial nature of the Leonidas Club appears to be an attempt to try and suppress the uh, independence of Ireland. Yes. Uh, I, yeah. I'm surprised, to the point almost where it feels like, this just feels like a normal, legit ending, and I, I like that. I feel like that's a good... I don't know. That's a, that's a good sign when a not rousing success ends uh, in a satisfying way as well. To the point where mm -hmm. it almost feels like we, we read through this and I'm like, huh, maybe this is the best ending there is. You know, like, probably isn't. and But it even, it even could be. Maybe, you know, there could be a route where we blow up the whole thing. But for what we had, this, I think, is the best ending that we can mm -hmm. get for, for the way we went through it. And I don't think we should scoff at the fact that we caught the murderer and, you know, started to... <laughs> we figured out who the murderer was, and then he died. Yeah, and then, he, yeah, and then problem solved. <laughs> we don't have to, we don't even have to do anything else. And then... <laughs> Cuff the corpse, boys. Yeah. And then, you know, we put into motion the steps of something much more grandiose that, honestly, we shouldn't have been dabbling in anyways. So someone else can handle it. <laughs> I think, honestly, it feels satisfying to me this end and i'm happy about that i was worried that we were going to get to this page and going to be like uh but i but i don't mm -hmm. so hey well dang uh any any other thoughts you have on this book here none especially yeah it's the tone wise and like format wise it was definitely the most different um yeah a lot of uh a lot of what feels like i i guess it feels fruitless just because that none of the clues came out of it and even after many successes we uh <laughs> still reached dead ends consistently at a certain point yeah. which uh is the only element of the formatting i would take issue with which it feels like the uh books were doing good work previously yes. to avoid yes it was a a long long like hour plus stretch of checks where the best case scenario is that you don't die yeah and i think that that's the thing is like a lot of yeah it is interesting i don't know i think we i think we took a very strange route through i guess is what i would imagine mm -hmm. um based off of like who we chose right away the checks we, the certain checks that we failed the certain checks that we succeeded like we failed, I think we failed like a pretty easy check right away with reviewing uh, the ticket, but then mm -hmm. 
like passed a lot of really hard checks. So I think it put, it put us in this like weird box, I think, uh, which is cool that the book at least has a, has a place for us, <laughs> you know, at least there's that, uh, yeah, for format wise, I do appreciate, uh, what the other books had been doing and I do hope it returns to, to more of that style, but, uh, the writing in this, it was all very effective, very strong writing. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, it felt like it was, this one was more wanting to tell a specific story than be a uh, game book. It felt like mm. more than some of the others. Yeah, which I can definitely see with like the kind of like multi-layered uh, conspiracy they've set out before us that, that imposes constriction on what yeah. otherwise might be a more open flowing story. Yeah, but regardless, I enjoyed my time with it anyways, and I'm looking forward to the next one. Uh, mm-hmm. of which we have we have two more we have two more and then unless we want to learn french we cannot read the eighth and final uh french only book so <laughs> I, I don't think that's happening alas uh you want to thank our lovely supporter of the episode absolutely special thanks this episode to executive producer justice tom much appreciated justice tom oh. as well as to all of the other patrons over at uh, turn to page, not turn to pagecast.com, rather, it is patron.com slash turn to pagecast. Again, a special thanks to the executive producer of this episode, Justice Tom. Much appreciated. Thank you, Justice Tom. And huge thank you to all the lovely supporters over there, patreon.com slash turn to pagecast. You want to help support this podcast in a free way? You can also consider subscribing over on YouTube, youtube.com slash add to the pagecast. There's comments there. You can send us an email if you want to get into contact with us. Uh, turn to paste. Turn to paste? <laughs> turn to paste. That's a command. Uh, turn to pagecast at gmail.com if you want to send us a direct email. If you want something to share with share us something. I don't know. Anything. And then reviews. Those are like wonderful free ways to, to help out. But alas, that's that. It's going to do it for today. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Adios.